0: Welcome to Week in Review, a recap events and issues pertinent to Central Illinois. I'm WMBD News Director Will Stevenson. First, issues pertinent to one local Democrat lawmaker and later to one local Republican lawmaker, as work continues at the Illinois State Capitol in Springfield. State Senator Dave Kaler is behind a piece of legislation, along with State Senator Linda Holmes of Aurora, that would protect so-called child influencers in Illinois, those who make money off their YouTube videos or Facebook posts and the like.
1: So we're here to talk to you today about uh, a pretty important bill. It's uh, Senate Bill 1782, and what it addresses is um, the whole area of what happens with, with child bloggers. And... Uh, Vlogging is, is now uh, an activity that is rampant on, on the Internet, and, and a lot of it is, is fine, but what we're talking about in this bill is what happens when uh, a, a child, uh, their you know, family vlogs them and, and distributes it and monetizes it, makes a lot of money, uh, a situation you know, that my 5-year-old, I've I found out, is, is involved in, and, and looking at a 6-year-old who is on the Internet, uh, test product, products, uh, toys and things. And the family makes millions of dollars out of that. Well, much like when, uh, back in the 30s, 1930s, when uh, Jackie Coogan was a child actor, they created a law, that uh, Coogan's Law, that, that helped set up a trust fund so that that child actor would have something when they, you know, turn to majority age uh, to be able to, you know, enjoy the fruits of their labor. Um, so this bill does that. And it says that under certain criteria that uh, when when money is made, uh, off, off of a child that uh, that they set up this trust fund. It also says that uh, that when there's uh, content that uh, that maybe a child, when they turn majority age, doesn't want distributed on the internet, that they can ask to have it removed and it and it's uh, it's wiped away. Because a lot of kids are quite frankly uh, videoed and it's it's really funny, but when they're you know 20 years old, they may not not thinking so funny. Um, this, this is an important uh, uh, bill, and th- there's a couple of states that have tried this. They haven't gotten it done. Uh, if we can pass this law and have it signed into law, Illinois will be the first in the nation to cover um, and protect children that are, that are being vlogged. Um, and I think it's, it, it's, it's something that, that is going to eventually happen. So let's be the trendsetters and let's, let's make it happen. Uh, I'm going to introduce uh, uh, Shereya Nalemothu. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, you can pronounce it better. But she is a 15-year-old high school student, and uh, Senator Holmes, who is the chief co-sponsor, and I uh, were contacted by her and said, here's an issue that we want you to look at. And and I did. When my, my, my first glance at the issue was, uh, yeah, this, this, this is OK. I didn't realize how big an issue this is. This is a huge issue. And we're getting national attention on this. Um, uh, so uh, I want to thank uh, Shereya for uh, being the inspiration behind this, uh, we had another woman in, in, uh, who testified from Washington State and then Chris McCarty, who also provided testimony. She did kind of the same thing in Washington State. Uh, that bill, unfortunately, is dead, so it's not going anywhere. But uh, the Illinois bill is alive and well. We just passed it out of committee unanimously. So um, we will uh, you know, take the next step. We're going to bring back a, an amendment that kind of clarifies some things. And uh, I'm going to introduce now Shiree to have her speak. Can you
2: spell your name?
3: Yep, S-H-R-E-Y-A, my last name is Nelamothu N-A-L-L-A-M-O-T-H-U. So, my name is Shreya Nelamothu and I'm a sophomore from University High School in Normal, Illinois. And I'm 15 years old, which means I'm Gen Z, which means I spend a lot of time online and on social media. When you're scrolling online, do you ever see videos of children or families vlogging every aspect of their life? Most of the time when kids are featured on the internet, it's often wholesome content with no ill intentions. But unfortunately with the rise of social media, we're starting to see the rise of something called child influencers. And child influencers are essentially kids who are forced to be featured in videos by their parents to rake in more views and more money. Although traditional actors have in Illinois have legislation in place to protect their rightful earnings, I learned that there is nothing in place for child influencers. The parents of these child influencers are able to keep the earnings that they've made by featuring their children for clicks. As someone who has grown up on the Internet, I have seen how kids that are too young to understand the gravity of what they are doing being forced to be featured on blogs and generating income that they won't have access to. As these children grow up, they will realize that all of the income that they have been working for is no longer there. This project started out as an independent study with my social studies teacher, Ms. Schmidt, who encouraged me to look into legislative avenues to help stop this exploitation. And I approached both Senator Kaler and Senator Holmes with this bill idea, because I want to help protect my peers who are being exploited for money. And now I will pass it on to Senator Holmes for some remarks.
4: Thank you so much. I I think we see the necessity for this, because the rise of social media, just creates opportunity for people, including minors, to make money online. This is something we didn't see years ago. Um, Thousands now of kid influencers are on the Internet. But the question lies, who sees the compensation? The children or their parents? Thinking back even ten years ago, young superstardom was something that was reserved for child actors and professional singers who start out on American Idol or something. But with the rise of social media influencing, all you need now to reach fame is a cell phone. And traditional child actors have been protected by for a number of years by child labor laws. However, there's nothing on the books to protect these child influencers. Parents should not be able to profit from the work of their children. It's no different than kid telephone television stars having protections, we must ensure that kids are accurately compensated for their work. I also can't help but think of these young kids as they start out with all these videos of them. You have videos of them in diapers. You have videos of them plastered all over the internet in all stages of growing up. When they become adults, there's a very good possibility that they're not going to want those videos out there. I look at that. When I, th- I think of, you know, my generation, we didn't have this. And think of all of us in the General Assembly as politicians to think would we really want all of you in the media to have access to everything we did in our lives that was put on social media from the time we were born to the time we were elected to office. So I think that right there sort of, sort of lets us know that this is something we do need protections. And while it's a very new area, and it's going to be a little bit of navigating to find out what those protections are, I think what we're doing here is taking that first step to get started so we're able to protect the kids that are doing this child and in, kid influencers on the Internet. I want to thank you for taking the time. I especially want to thank Shreya for bringing this to our attention. It's an extremely important issue, and I want to say I'm impressed with your maturity. I'm impressed with the way you've presented this, and I look forward to working with you. Thank you.
1: So do we have any questions? Yes. Yeah.
5: In a lot of areas of life, in education, in healthcare, parents have the right to give consent on behalf of their children. They're empowered to do that. How is this different?
1: Well, this is a little bit different because it's, it's, it's where children are, you know, their activities are monetized. And, uh, and so, you know, this becomes kind of an industry for the family. And uh, so, you know, this is not talking about uh, grandma sending, you know, Facebook pictures of the kids, you know, grandkids growing up. We're, we're talking about, you know, this being a, a business. And uh, so in the same way that a child actor, you know, has to be protected by certain parameters, this is what this is attempting to do. Yes. Um,
3: what protections are you looking at um, with the Attorney General?
1: Uh, the, the Attorney General's office uh, basically is, that's the entity that uh, you know, protects us as consumers. And so we want to uh, engage with them because they know the law. This, this is kind of a, a, a new area for, for law, and what we don't know is that just how much uh, you know, control do we have in Illinois when, when this is a worldwide issue. Uh, so we're going to engage uh, not only the Department of Labor, which has been working with us already, but the attorney general's office, just in terms of their their outlook on on consumer protection,
5: Senator Kaler, with these kids making a lot of money, in theory it could be millions. Is there a tax issue as well?
1: Well, that's that, yes. There there is. I mean, if they're making this money. They have to re- report that, and that becomes uh, you know a personal issue with them and the, either the state or the the IRS. But absolutely.
2: What about? Uh if like I just put a video uh, of like my three year old godson and it blows up, uh, would I still have to register uh, if it starts making money if it's just a one time thing or is it just
1: well it it depends there's some thresholds in there it says that you know how much uh, how much money how uh, is is compensated, how much of the uh the video itself is features the children so um you know these these are all very specific questions that we do have to have to address. We're going to come back with, uh, with uh, an amendment on this uh, trying to address those specific issues. We had very good questions in, in committee. Uh, again, this is a new area, so uh, uh, and, I, and I promise that this will not be the perfect solution to all this, uh, but it will be a start. More Week in Review
0: coming up. It may be a debate that goes on for as long as time at the Illinois Capitol, a discussion about ethics, in this case, more than a year after House Speaker Mike Madigan was arrested on federal bribery-related charges and after Madigan was forced to resign in disgrace. Republicans claim Democrats don't really want you to know about what's been done about ethics reform. This week, State Representative Ryan Spain and several other GOP lawmakers want you to know what they feel is still needed
6: we're here to talk about really the most important topic in state government and if it hasn't been proven again and again we're here to remind you why it's so important and that is the topic of ethics ethics and corruption are one of the top priorities of the house republican caucus and one of the things that needs to change in the most dramatic way in the state of illinois so today we're here really as a reminder of what happened one year ago, because we've now just passed the one year anniversary of the indictment of former Speaker Mike Madigan on 22 counts, federal counts of corruption activities within the state of Illinois. This is uh, uh, a reminder of the problems that we have within state government and why things need to change. I was one of three members, Republican members in, in the House, that. Exercised the little known and used rule 91 that convened the special investigating committee to shine a spotlight on the activities of Mike Madigan and his associates and the way that he conducted business to enrich himself and his friends as speaker of the house that happened uh, through the leadership of house Republicans to shine a spotlight on the need for ethics reforms and even though that special investigating committee was convened, it was impaneled, uh, and ultimately swept under the rug many of the corrupt activities and misconduct from Speaker Madigan, we shined a light on this topic. And we are here to continue shining a light on this topic today. It's very important that we never give up talking about ethics and corruption and the cost that it has placed on our state government. So we're going to talk today about a few very practical things, legislation that's pending and that needs to move forward uh, immediately uh, that will help improve the ethics lapses that exist in the state of Illinois, uh, and also some ways that we uh, should reflect uh, on the importance of uh, c- cleaning out corruption throughout the state of Illinois. So two resolutions that are very pertinent, one that will be forthcoming. Uh, will ask for the House of Representatives to ban the placement of a Speaker Mad- Madigan portrait uh, in the House chambers. This is something that has been done for past governors. Uh, um, that you can think of uh, up on the second floor it's important that we do so in the house of representatives and another resolution that will uh, honor the activities of a u.s attorney who is retiring at the end of this week uh, someone that uh, we have great respect for and certainly the state and the nation appreciates his service and that's u.s attorney john lausch and i'll turn it over to our floor leader patrick windhorse to talk more about
5: uh, u.s attorney lausch thank you uh- Leader Spain. My name is Patrick Windhorst. I'm State Representative for the 117th District, which is all or parts of 10 counties in southeastern Illinois. As uh, Representative Spain mentioned, I currently serve as House Republican floor leader, and I'm also the ranking uh, House Republican member on the House Judiciary Criminal Committee. Since taking office, I've filed and co-sponsored many ethics reform and corruption-related bills, only to see them languish and die in the Rules Committee. In fact, in 2021, the General Assembly passed an ethics reform package that was so weak that sitting legislative inspector, the sitting <coughs> Legislative Inspector General resigned in disgust. It seemed during the Magan era of Illinois government that corruption was the widely accepted, rarely punished status quo. But something changed when John Lausch was appointed to serve as U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Illinois by President Trump. Since he was sworn into office in November 2017, John Lausch has presided over several investigations that led to multiple indictments for public corruption. The most notable cases have been racketeering and bribery charges brought against longtime political giants in Illinois, including longtime House Speaker Mike Madigan and longtime Chicago alderman Ed Burke. Despite several Illinois legislators being indicted or imprisoned on corruption charges since 2019, Illinois still lags behind other states in enacting meaningful reforms that would eliminate conflicts of interest and power, and empower the Legislative Inspector General. We have to do more, but today I want to extend my thanks and congratulations to United States Attorney John Lausch for serving the citizens of Illinois with honor and distinction, and I want to especially thank him for his efforts to stamp out corruption and to restore the public's faith in law enforcement in Illinois. As it has been mentioned, today marks that one year ago that Mike Madigan was indicted on 22 counts of corruption-related charges. We have not solved the problem of corruption in Illinois government. There is much more to do, but U.S. Attorney Lausch has moved Illinois forward in a meaningful and significant way. I wish Mr. Lausch the best in his next endeavors and thank him for his public service, his sacrifice, and for the results he has achieved representing the best interests of the citizens of Illinois. I'll now turn it over to my colleague, Representative Blaine Wilhauer. Thank you. It's uh, good to be
2: here today on this important and uh, most pressing issue. Um, I think everybody knows the corruption crisis in the state of Illinois is a worldwide embarrassment. Um, but what we don't talk about enough is how the rampant corruption that, uh, and the influence peddling that takes place in here um, affects regular people's ability to prosper in this state. Because the majority party refuses to put in place even the most bare minimum of uh, ethical guardrails, here's what kind of happens on almost every major piece of legislation or lack of legislation in this place. Big money special interest comes in and gives big money to politicians in power who then pass legislation that is basically for the special interests, mostly written by the special interests, that benefit the status quo at the expense of the taxpayers in this state. And every day that we are not making major reforms that bring more opportunity to this state, taxpayers in this state are being punished. So, you know, let's do some simple things, guys. Uh, Let's uh, let's expose and eliminate conflicts of interest. Legislators need to choose between personal profit and public service. No more politicians like Madigan and many others around here using their legislative clout to line their pockets at the taxpayers' expense. House Bill 1641 would, at a uh, bare minimum, put restrictions in place that would force public recu- recusal for conflicts of interest. That's common sense. The revolving door between legislator and lobbyists is a is a joke in this state. It needs a needs a lot of work. House Bill 3953 changes that restriction from basically immediately, in in, in essence, to, uh, to three years. I think that's an important and practical step. The legislative inspector general uh, set up that uh, Representative Windhorst uh, referenced is so bad that the previous uh, legislative inspector general resigned after the weak watered down legislation that we passed in the last session, calling the office a paper tiger. House Bill 3582, um, would address those, those legitimate concerns. It would give subpoena power to the legislative inspector general. It would give them the power to investigate without, ask, without getting permission from the very people that they are supposed to be investigating um, to, to do their job there. And it would, um, it would require that the legislative ethics committee um, actually vote no on uh, releasing results of investigations currently um, basically they have to uh, vote yes to 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 release it we want to change that uh, backwards and and make the uh, make the standard procedure that it would be would be released unless they specifically voted not to Um, and we need to empower citizens in this in this state especially since so many citizens in this state are marginalized by the way that we make maps in this state here Um, people should have the ability by ballot initiative to override egregious legislation like the Safety Act or the (coughs) cash bail stuff the state of California which is uh, you know uh, competing with us to be the most far-left state in the in the country has this mechanism and they actually use this mechanism to override the governor and the legislature on the on ending cash bail in the in the state of California the bottom line is that everybody knows what needs to be done. Everybody in here knows what needs to be done. The other side of the aisle knows to be knows what needs to be done and they're just not doing it. It's it's completely unacceptable. And we're here today because we're not accepting any more watered-down half measures. We don't compromise when it comes to, when it, when it comes to requiring ethical behavior from, from uh, our government. And we need nothing less than the strongest anti-corruption uh, safeguards in the country to start to restore some credibility, much-needed credibility here, and to ensure that uh, corrupt politicians like Mike Madigan never get the kind of power over the citizens that they've had in this state ever again more week in review coming up
0: the peoria fire department recently promoted three of its officers up the ranks and if it sounds like fire chief sean solberger has done this before in his short time in charge you may be right
7: i think it's important to also recognize how we got here uh, i do want to have a shout out to rick morgan who retired 29 years of service to the Peoria community. And with his retirement and his dedication to, uh, to this area, if anybody who knows Rick knows that he was an icon or is an icon in this area um, and he elected to retire. So that's what brought us here today. So I think that that's worth at least a round of applause even though Rick's not here. Anybody who follows Peoria Fire Department knows that we've been in a state of flux. You know, We've been constantly evolving. We've had a lot of retirements, a lot of turnover. So we're hoping with this, by the grace of God, that we, now we have some stability in our command staff. Um, this is extremely important to me. I know that. It's difficult to lead when you have constant revolve, you know, we're constantly bringing people up front and you're constantly having to, uh, retrain people and things of that nature. I know, uh, the people that came before me took that challenge on and they were part of, you know, that constant revolving door. But today we have the ability to recognize three individuals who are going to help us create stability. Um, we have the pleasure of starting with our new assistant chief and that's Tony Cummings. Um, Tony and I graduated from Peoria High together in 1992. It was just like yesterday. Um, I could sit up here for hours, honestly, in describing Tony. It's very personal, I know, to me. Anybody who's had the pleasure of working around Tony or just being with him on an off day, he has an infectious personality. Um, anybody who's ever heard him laugh uh, as he laughs now. Um, he just he brightens the room, and he does, but that's just one thing. And I think that this is what gets glossed over a lot. Tony is highly educated, extremely smart. He brings a great work ethic to the Peoria Fire Department in this community, and his attitude. I know I struggle at times um, with keeping the, you know, your attitude in check. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that, and Tony always brings me back down to planet earth. Um, so I, I do want to say thank you for that. Um, Tony, this is very humbling. Um, who would have ever thought, you know, over a 22 year plus career being a paramedic for 24 years. And I know that he made mention that this was never really a goal of his. He never said, Hey man, when I graduated high school, I want to be a pure firefighter. We are so fortunate to have you today. So, uh, I'm very humbled to be able to stand before you today and uh, congratulate Tony Cummings being promoted to the rank of assistant chief. So with Chief Cummings promotion to assistant chief, we have the ability to uh, fill a division chief role. Division chief of operations is the backbone of our command staff and there's just no no way around it. That division chief is in charge of pretty much everything when I say that, that's facilities, manpower, equipment, And the list just goes on and on. They are our median. This person um, is the the first point of contact between labor and management, um, whether that's a grievance situation or that's just daily operations. So it's extremely critical that we get the right person for that job. And over the course of time, we've had the ability to do that consistently. And this is just another example of us um, going through our vetting process, doing our interviews, but then knowing deep down inside who's the right person for the job. And as we stand here today and we look at Lori Baxter, I can once again stand up here for hours and give you so many examples of why she has earned this position. Um, I said I wasn't gonna do this. Um, (laughs) Lori and I are classmates, right? There's a special bond with classmates right? You come on the job together. Um, I always looked up to Lori and that's the God's honest truth. Knowing that this is a male dominant profession and there's really no way around that. It's hard for a female to come into the profession as a firefighter. And I've seen since day one that Lori has accepted that challenge. She's taking the bull by the horns for lack of a better phrase. Um, and she just jumped into the fire, for lack of another better phrase. Um, and so many, so many examples, you know, she could have easily cowered to the point of working in slower fire stations, not being on the executive board, things of that nature. But since day one, Lori wanted to be the firefighter. She wanted to be the shining example for females to see that you can do this. I'll be honest with you, this was an easy pick, and that's not a slight to anybody who put in for this job. Lori has worked extremely hard, um, and like I said, I could bore you and sit up here for hours and talk about all the things, uh, being on the executive board, being on committees, running fundraisers, and the list goes on and on. So. It's with great pride that I stand before you today and announce our next division chief of operations, Lori Baxter. So with the division chief promotion, we have the ability now to select our next battalion chief. So this is the last promotion within the ranks of the union. This is an extremely vital position to our overall success as a fire department. So anybody who does not know, we have two on shift battalion chiefs. The town is cut in half. Battalion one covers south of uh, Nebraska, south of McClure, and battalion three covers north of McClure. It's challenging. Six fire stations, 20 plus firefighters at every, um, in every battalion. The training, the daily operations, the coordination, the scheduling. And so it's, it's extremely important that you get the right people. This is the first supervisor, right? A lot of us look at the company officer and they are, they run their apparatus and they have two people underneath them. This is the first supervisor. They work hand in hand with the division chief of operations on a daily basis. They make decisions that affect lives every single day. They're part of our safety net. Um, So that being said, we go through a very arduous process to test for battalion chief. It's highly competitive. Um, And I said this accurately to every single person that's in this pool. This was a very difficult decision because we had very highly qualified, highly skilled people. So we had to dig deeper. As a command staff, we had to decide what's the best fit. How do you decide that? I decided very simply. Strong work ethic and a great attitude. And if there's ever a person that exemplified that It's Ryan Calhoun. Um, A lot of times, these things become very personal because we're considered a medium-sized fire department. We're 200 firefighters. We always round up. Right, Josh? We always round up. Um, So it's very intimate. We build relationships. um, And this is a great relationship that all of us have had the ability to experience. Uh, If I had to label Ryan at all, I would say that Ryan's a firefighter's firefighter. A lot of people look up to Ryan for guidance and leadership, whether that's through the union, committee level, whatever the case may be, or just his expertise on a daily basis. So it's our wishes to bring forward Ryan to take those, that level of education and knowledge and skill and now bring it to the battalion chief rank. It's with great pride that I stand before you today and congratulate Ryan Calhoun to the ranks of battalion chief
0: more week in review coming up it's not going on at the moment but if you've seen some heavy equipment around peoria city hall lately there's a good reason for it mother nature has not been too kind to parts of the exterior of the city hall building so I walked over there to talk about it with spokesperson Stacy Peterson.
8: We're actually standing on the corner next to our parking lot, right next to the Lake Superior sandstone exterior that is currently being restored. Parts of it are being restored.
0: Um, is that, if I remember right, this isn't the original exterior of the building, is it?
8: Well, this actually is the original exterior of the building. This is our third city hall, but it was constructed, construction finished in 1899. So we're actually kind of on the eve of our 125th birthday. This is the original exterior. However, there has been some extensive renovation work, uh, most recently in the 90s, but not entire pieces, just partials.
0: I was going to say, so it sounds like it was probably high time to start to get it all done i imagine
8: well this currently our budget only calls for part of it being done being from the ground where we are standing here on the sidewalk and 16 feet above nothing above 16 feet will be repaired during this round but maintaining a business a building that's this age is kind of an ongoing responsibility so we're always looking at how we can make sure they're keeping it in great shape
0: what kind of you said though this has been i mean maybe sort of an ongoing type of thing but what kind of made you decide that now is the the time to do this? And I guess I can almost answer that question by looking at uh, two sets of sandstone right here.
8: Yeah, that's that's true. Many people who are walking by the building can see that there's been some, should we say, environmental effects. Um, sandstone is a remarkable material. It can sustain up to 800 degrees of heat, making it resistant to fire. And a lot of, it, once it gets to 800 uh, degrees, it usually starts cracking. But it's incredibly appealing for that. However, it's Pretty prone to reacting to the elements, and what we're seeing on this lower level is kind of a wearing away or a crumbling of some pieces, and a lot of that is due to the salt and brine that we use on city streets that kind of get close to this building. That porous nature then starts to decay, and then we have to deteriorate. Then we have to replace it. But to your point, we have a facilities manager who kind of does a scan of the building regularly, and then builds that into his budget.
0: Was there was there anything else that was concerning about him that kind of led to now being this being done or or are there other things you're finding out as this is going on?
8: Well, there are no surprises during this project, which is a good thing. But one thing that we noticed that kind of led to it were the archways around some of our doors were starting to crumble and, and settle. You'd see like a dust around the, the foundation of the building. That's a pretty good uh, indication that you need to get some work done on the building.
0: So so the salt used on the roads has kind of played havoc with this. We're pretty far distance from the street here, though.
8: We are, but it's not just salt. It's environmental changes, too. You'll notice, though, if you look further up the building, you're not seeing this kind of wear and tear. So if yeah, you're thinking, it's true. You know, people are walking by it. Cars, we've got cars backing up into it. You've got exhaust getting close to it. So it's probably got a lot more exposure down here to any kind of elements than other parts of the building.
0: So I guess you don't really need to do the whole the whole exterior of the building, but is that in the plans anyway?
8: Well, it's kind of an as needed, you know, Um, if we don't want to spend money that we don't need to on the building, I mean, that's important. And at 124 years, it's holding up really well. You'll notice that there are some hairline cracks uh, as we walk kind of along the side of this building. And that's going to require just more of a kind of a patching rather than a full replacement.
0: Have you, uh, has anything uh, surprised all of you as this has been going on the last few weeks?
8: (laughs) Well, uh, two things really surprised us. Number one, when you're sitting inside the building and the stonemasons are working, it is remarkably loud. (laughs) Uh, And as the oldest, one of the oldest professions that currently are still around, they have not really changed their technology much. So it's really incredible to watch them work. It is Uh, incredibly back breaking work but they use their hands a lot they have to use their muscle a lot so that's one thing it's loud it's so loud the other thing that was really interesting was when they took the first chunk of sandstone out we could see the bricks behind it which kind which led us to believe that the sandstone which i thought was solid all the way through is actually a facade i
0: think that's uh, what i was thinking of earlier when i was asking you
8: yeah it's really neat and and what was really interesting about it was to pull away those sandstone blocks and to see the bricks you actually have that realization of how was this building constructed in 1897 to 1899 and a majority of that work was done by hand you know so we're really looking at history uh, and stones that haven't been exposed since 1899. I
0: was gonna say, isn't it amazing that that this building has held up so well given that it was all done by hand? Well, at least the exterior.
8: You know, the exterior and the interior, for anybody who comes into the building, we have what's called a step foundation in our basement. It's a very unusual foundation that's kind of uh, built by hand to help support walls and that's another thing there are constant reminders that this is such an old piece of history that we get to interact with every day
0: they've been doing this work here the last uh... Uh, how many weeks now they've kind of been you know battling some of this ridiculous weather we've been having
8: well they have and prior to that they came out and kind of did an environmental scan because what they didn't quite know and and these are stonemasons from Autobahn and they're expert craftsmen but they didn't really know how thick those stones were so they had to come out look at it take a sample piece test it see what the mortar looked like and then they would go on pause because we'd have terrible weather and then they'd come back when we had a bit of sunshine and so on and so forth so you know we're hoping that the work will get completed by spring there it should be but they're on a pause for right now for a couple of weeks
0: part of this was also I guess this pause is a little bit problematic because they're dealing with some of the same how shall I be vague enough to say issues that <laughs> that uh the rest of us in in industry have had to deal with
8: yes the the issues that are of the supply chain variety the dreaded supply chain they are um you know they also have to carve these bricks the interesting thing is is that the the bricks the replacement pieces that we're seeing i I call them bricks they're stone pieces of stone are coming from our surplus yard and they are carved Although they get cut by machine they do get Um, shaped by hand you can tell that they are keeping with the rustic nature of the building and they come in large blocks because these replacement pieces are actually from the old downtown bergner store and when that store closed in 1997 and was torn down the city took over all the surplus bricks and now we use them to do these replacement pieces
0: you just answered my next question about that and that that's a that's a pretty cool thing to have especially seemingly how well it's going to work with this building
8: yeah it's it's incredible because when you think about it when i talk to the stonemasons the the sandstone from bergner's was most likely quarried from the same quarry where the city hall sandstone came from it's incredible because there are only three quarries like that off of the shores of lake superior and when you also add into that that at the end of the 1800s sandstone was starting to fall out of fashion because people started to want to see buildings made out of white materials, granite, marble. It was a little bit shinier and newer. So now it's actually really hard to get sandstone. And if you look around Peoria, you've got city hall. There's a church on the corner of Hancock and Monroe. And then there are a few pieces from Bergner's that have been put into the city landscape over by the Civic Center and at the intersection of War Memorial and Knoxville.
0: It makes me think of sort of the the discussion I hear sometimes in the city council and other places about, you know, the need to preserve some buildings like this. But on the other hand, a lot of people want to build more modern structures.
8: You know, you're right. It, depending on how you look at it, it's it's really hard to think about a downtown that was uh, really robust, lots of activity, a beloved department store, and then it's gone. But then it gets to take on a new life with a historic building. So it's a good case for recycling and recycling use and sustainability. And if if those materials can't be used in a working building, we're really happy to have them here.
0: Last question before I run out of time here. How much am I paying for this?
8: (laughs) Well, this has been budgeted into the community improvement plan. So for this year is $50,000 to cover the tuck pointing, the replacement work, and the assessment.
0: That's not bad.
8: I, You know, considering that when this building was built in 1899, it was at a cost of $234,000. That's $234,000 in 1899 money. Um, but $50,000 for, for the use of the stonemasons and keeping the building going, and it's on the historic register, we are really, really pleased with how it's turning out. It's a great investment.
0: That does it for this edition of Week in Review. I'm Will Stevenson, WMBD News.